Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Today on the Action Catalyst, it's exciting that we're spending time with Steve Seabold. Steve got started as an athlete, as a tennis player, starting as a very young person, ultimately becoming a professional tennis player, then transitioning into coaching, and then realizing that one of the real keys to athletic performance and success is mental toughness. That's also very true of people in the sales profession and people building businesses. And so he has developed a phenomenal career helping people in understanding how to increase sales and get better results through a unique blend of what he calls mental toughness training. He's been featured on numerous news stories, broadcasts, media all over the world, has written four books on mental toughness, two of which are international bestsellers. And he came by this information by interviewing people that were excellent practitioners in the area, by thinking constantly about it, and by coming up with best practices, it could make a difference for everyone. He's been very involved with charities. In the past, he was on the National Charity Awards Committee, chaired by President George W. Bush, and served alongside Merv Griffin, Pat Boone, and Cheryl Ladd. He is a certified speaking professional, and only 1% of all speakers ever achieve that distinction. And we're very delighted that he's here to spend some time with us. Let's go right now to Steve Siebold. So, Steve, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. You know, you are a world-class trainer. You're an international best-selling author. You're a television personality. You make a difference in people's lives. But I wonder if you would take us back to maybe how it all started and when you got involved in tennis, eventually becoming a world-class tennis player, and how you transitioned from there into coaching athletes and then ultimately building a tremendous business helping people. Well, I, I recognized that, you know, when I was coming up as a junior tennis player and college tennis player, and then eventually I played in the pros, I realized that all of the things being equal, the difference between winning and losing really is really the, the way you thought about things, your philosophies, your strategies, your psychological uh, strategies. And I, become, I became kind of fascinated with that. And when I started coaching, you know, famous, you know, world-class tennis players, Olympic athletes, those types of people, uh, I was able to help them with those things and just, just little nuances that made the difference. So that's kind of how I transferred from being a player to a, an actual coach. So learning how to be a coach first uh, must have been quite a transition to learning how to sort of indirectly influence people as opposed to just use your own thoughts to control your behavior. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's a completely different job. I mean, you know, do, being a player and a coach are two different things, and they're two different skill sets, frankly. Not every great player is a, is a great coach and vice versa. And uh, and I think that but having experience at a world-class level really did help me, even though many of the athletes I worked with are, were above anything I ever achieved. But it was, it was very helpful to, to have competed against people at their level for a number of years to be able to uh, to sort of step in their shoes, so to speak. Plus, you could add that element of objectivity because nobody can be truly objective about themselves. Exactly right. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's a big part of mental toughness training that we talk about is, uh, is living in objective reality, seeing yourself in objective reality, your business, your performance, your, every, your personal life, everything, as opposed to you know, as opposed to kind of a fantasy world where I think a lot of people in the, in the masses sort of, sort of live. 
Mm-hmm. You know, m- many athletes strive to transition into a business career. You went from coaching athletes, but how did you get involved with helping sales teams and salespeople and sales managers? Well, it's an interesting story. <laughs> well, it's interesting, but it's, it's funny kind of anyway. I was playing in a, in a, a, a kind of a garage band in Florida and, uh, and not a very good one. That was probably the worst one in the band. But we were having fun, and a guy came up to me during one of the breaks, and he said, you know, I've heard about the work you're doing with all these great athletes in Florida. He said, but, uh, you know, I've listened to your band for the last hour, and uh, you want to put that guitar down and pick up that microphone because you're never going to make a guitar player. He said, you ought to you start picking the microphone up and talking all over, you know, through public speaking about what you do. He said, because it's unique, and he goes, I've heard you before. And uh, he said, you should take this all over the world because you have something to say, but it's not through a guitar. <laughs> I said, well, thanks a lot for that. But uh, that's that was kind of the the, the, the funny start of it, and uh, I, I, then I, I I went into corporate America about twenty almost twenty five years ago now, and uh, kind of saw salespeople as the, the the athletes of the business world as well as leadership teams, and uh, so I've been focusing on them for the last uh, almost twenty five years now. Uh, in terms of working with salespeople, what are some of the sort of unique mental challenges that salespeople face that people in other functional areas of a business don't? No, oh, that's a great question. Uh, the the great ones underrate themselves, and the lower ones and the middle and the middle group overrate themselves, grossly overrate themselves. Uh, so what? The, so I'm kind of the grim reaper that comes in with mental toughness training and says we're going to get into objective reality. So, for example, one of the first questions we ask them, we do a lot of survey work before we. We actually go into a to a team and actually talk to them and consult with them and all that. Uh, it starts out with uh, with surveys and, and statistics. And so one of the questions we ask them is, based on your results with XYZ Corporation, in your role with XYZ Corporation, would you consider yourself a good performer, a very good performer, or a great slash world class performer? And in corporate America, we've 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 probably surveyed a little over a hundred thousand people probably over the years, and we have eighty two percent of them identify themselves in terms of results, as world-class, among the best in the world. But yet, when we go back to management, the number is less than 5%. So there's a 77% delusion factor in corporate America, at least with the teams we worked with in the, you know, many of the biggest companies in the, in the country and, and some in the world. So that's the first thing we do is get them into objective reality. So they don't always like it, but it's one of those things you have to do with an athlete, a great athlete, if they're ever going to be better. And you have to deal with that with a great salesperson if they're ever going to be truly world-class. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a characteristic of salespeople, of course, that they're going to be optimists, but a 77% differential in rating is a bit overly optimistic. It's delusion is what it is, really. Yeah, it's a delusion more than more than of anything else, I think. Yeah, it's easy to fall into. Right. Well, what's interesting about that is they have access to their sales results, the hard facts, the numbers, and yet they would still rate themselves as world-class when their numbers may not even be on their quota or their target. Exactly. Th- their criteria is clearly not the same as the corporation's. <laughs> so we have to go in and straighten that out pretty fast. That's the first thing we do. Well, that is fantastic. Now, in some of your research for, for books, and I'd like to have you share some ideas on, on three of the books, if you don't mind. One of them is called How Rich People Think. And you conducted interviews with over 1,200 highly successful people financially. Uh, that's a huge database. Uh, what are some of the big truths that you distilled out of those interviews? Yeah, in 1984, I was a broke college student that wanted to be rich. And I'd grown up with rich kids on the tennis circuit, you know, so I started interviewing millionaires and I've been interviewing them ever since. So it's actually been 34 years at this point of interviewing. It's, it's uh, you know, over over 1,300 now. When I wrote that book, I think it was 1,200 and something. But 
you know, probably the biggest thing, Dan, I think overall, because I've done so many hundreds of interviews about this, is that that what they taught me was most people are never going to get rich because they they have a, a very unhealthy relationship with money, which I did as well, which I think most of us do. We grow up with this unhealthy relationship. Uh, for example, that that rich people are crooks and money is a bad thing and you're not going to go to heaven if you're rich and all these nonsense things that we're brainwashed with by people that usually have never had any money. And so we, we come out, you know, we come out of and as, as adults and with this terrible relationship with money. And now we're supposed to really, you know, attain all this. I mean, we're supposed to be successful. And it's, uh, it's kind of a we're, we're, we're kind of strapped right, right away from, 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 uh, from all this, all this negative programming in childhood. So the first thing they taught me was develop a healthy relationship with money if you ever want to have it. Mm-hmm. So not only respect it, but also don't think it's in any way a bad thing. In fact, it can be an element of very good things. Oh, exactly right. I mean, you, you, you probably won't believe this. This is almost an unbelievable thing. This just happened the other day. I had a young kid call from a high school, emailed me, and I get all these emails about that book because that book sold over a million copies now around the world. And so this kid calls in the office, and he, he's, an, he's an 18-year-old kid, and he's in California. He's doing a book report on how rich people think. And he just wants to ask a few questions. And I was off the road. And so I took the calls a couple weeks ago. And he said, three questions for you. My first question is, is there anything good about being rich? And, I, and I was, I've, I've done God knows how many thousands of interviews over the 20 years. And I've never had that question before. Is there anything good about being rich? And the other two questions were similar. They were both very negative about being rich. And I said, who has told you that there's anything bad about having a lot of money? I don't understand. And he says, well, you know, there's so much negative about rich people and everything. I mean, we're taught that from the beginning. And he told me all this background. And I just couldn't. I'm, I was floored. I'm thinking, you're, you're handicapping this kid before he ever gets out of high school, for God's sakes. No wonder the whole country's broke. And so I learned from the, the self-made millionaires at a very young age that, uh, that you had to go against the grain, even in the richest country in the world, if you ever wanted to be a self-made millionaire. Mm-hmm. And it all starts with the way we think, just like being a better athlete and being a better salesperson. I think you're right. Yeah. Huh. I think that's fantastic. Now, mental toughness is really the area in which you are the gold standard. Uh, the world looks to you for coaching in the area of mental toughness, whether it's sales, sales leadership, athletics, uh, personal disciplines, etc. I really got a tickle out of the title of one of your books, Die Fat or Get Fit <laughs> or Get Tough. Yeah. Die Fat or Get right. Tough. Um, you see the health crisis in America as well and around the world. Uh, what are some of the real themes in that one for our listeners? Oh, yeah. The first day that book came out, the first week that book came out, I was on the Today Show with Kathy Lee Gifford, and I had three death threats after the interview, a five-minute interview on the Today Show, and three people threatened to kill me. They didn't want me to leave the studio. I was going over to Good Morning America in New York to do the next interview, and they were they wanted to give me security. But that's how crazy this is when you say, hey, look, if you're fat, don't you know, don't don't feel bad. It, 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 we've, we've all gained weight before. It's really easy to do with all the all the food out there that we shouldn't eat, and I've certainly done it myself. It's easy to do. But but it really is about mental toughness. It's not about the diets or the or anything else. And it, and it kind of goes back, Dan, to what we were talking about with the companies. You know, I get fat and then I blame the food companies and I blame the ingredients in the food and I blame the government and I blame everyone but the person that made me fat, which is the person staring me back in the mirror. So all we're saying is, hey, look, don't don't beat yourself up. We've all done it, but at least or most of us have done it. But at least realize that it, that I'm the problem and I'm the solution. You know, it's it's not. Um, it's not something outside of me. Take responsibility for your own results. Right. And if people can't do that with their own physical body, it's difficult to do that with business results or relationship results or anything yeah, else. Definitely. But it's a key. Yeah, you're right. So it goes back to what Zig Ziglar always said. Whenever you point the finger at someone else, you have three times as many pointing back at yourself. That's right. That's right. 
So I think that's awesome. Uh, and then your your 177 mental toughness secrets of the world class. I mean, what a compelling thought. But I know that you see these common threads. Can you share two or three of those mental toughness secrets with us? Sure. One that we work a lot on with people is compartmentalization. I mean, it's like the longest word I know, compartmentalization. But yeah, the idea to be able to put your emotions in sort of uh, compartmentalized boxes. So in other words, for example, the most common one is a salesperson gets in a fight with his spouse, let's say, before he goes into work, and he's got a big sale that day. He's got a presentation he's prepared for for weeks. And he goes in, and he blows the presentation because his emotions have effectively bled over into the sales presentation. And so we say if he learns to compartmentalize his emotions, he'll, he'll keep his emotions that he, he, you know, he had that morning when he had the fight with his spouse in sort of this airtight psychological box. When he goes into the sales presentation, he's not feeling any of those emotions. Now, when he wants to go home and, and open that box up again, then he can start from scratch. But it's the ability to do what great athletes are able to do. Navy SEALs are able to do. Uh, great performers that we've worked with all over the world. They're able to separate their emotions from the next performance. And sometimes it's just within seconds, and sometimes it's life and death. So that's compartmentalization would be one that's uh, very popular from that book. I'd say that's extremely important and something we can all use on a daily basis. Sure. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Now, kind of turning the lens back into your own career trajectory, Steve, I'm sure that like everyone who's accomplished anything great, you've also hit obstacles and setbacks, something much more than bumps in the road. Uh, what, what do you do from a mindset standpoint when you're faced with a brick wall and you're not sure if there's an opening? Oh, yeah. We, we just had one in the last few years. We, we had a project we invested $8 million in and we lost $4 million on the deal. And for us, that's a lot of money because we're just a small business. And, and so that we've had, we've just been, you know, dealing with that for the last couple of years. We kept feeling like we're going to turn it around, turn it around, turn it around. And it just keeps turning us upside down. And so uh, we finally, uh, a few months ago, we finally decided, well, that $4 million is gone. So we're just going to stop throwing good money after bad. And so that's just like a recent thing that's happened to our, our little business. And, um, and so, you know what, we, 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 the way we look at it is we say, I mean, not that we haven't had, you know, <laughs> moments of darn it, I wish we would have done some of the things we did. But, you know, we're living, as you know, Dan, in, in an age of unbelievably rapid disrupt disruption. And that's exactly what happened to us in the project was the world changed. And it literally changed every year of the four-year project uh, that we we're involved in. And uh, we just couldn't keep pace. We made a few dumb decisions, et cetera. But, you know, the way we look at it, we, we have to look at it, I think, going forward is, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a $4 million education we just got and we'll try not to make the same mistake again. And hopefully we won't. Uh, and, and it's just money. We can always make it back. Those are on the good days, Dan. Now, on the bad days, it's not so rosy, but, but that's what we try to do is turn it around. Right. So digging a little deeper on that one, how do you keep from beating yourself up when you realize we have made some mistakes? Things are just, oh my gosh. And people, sometimes their jobs are at stake. How do you, how do you compartmentalize that set of emotions where you don't beat yourself up unmercifully so you can be constructive? Well, I think I, I do beat myself for a little while, but I don't do it for as long as I used to. I think that's probably the most honest answer is that, you know, I think that, you know, in the beginning, like when I was a tennis player, you, you kind of hang with it for a long time, whatever mistakes you make. And you, you, you hang on to it too long. Now I still beat myself up a little bit, but not, it doesn't last very long. You know, we, we kind of operate under the, you know, in, in psychological performance training or mental toughness training, whichever you want to label it. We, we operate under the philosophy of fail fast. If you, if you screw up, you make a mistake, you have a bad break, whatever it is, fail fast, have a bad break fast, beat yourself up if you need to quickly, but you don't need to. But if you're going to make it fast and then get over it and move on, 
simply because not out of any kind of, you know, great, uh, great philosophy other than serve your own best interest. The longer you beat yourself up, the longer you're down, the tougher it is to get back up. So we're really just serving our own self, the best self-interest by getting up fast and forgiving ourselves and moving on to our next success. Mm-hmm. And ideally not making exactly the same mistake multiple times. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, sure. Um, sometimes I remind people that life is boring if you repeat the same mistake. So go make a new one. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Now, in terms of coaching people with things like their self-talk and their self-image, uh, because the source of beating ourselves up where we don't stop is usually how we feel about ourselves, what, what would be some things that you've found have helped you personally and that have also you've been able to pass on so that others can become better coaches of others? I think this is a really great question. I met a guy, I don't know if you know him or not, Dan, but his name, I met him in 1986. His name is uh, Dr. Shad Helmstetter. Yeah, you, do, you know, do you know him? When he first wrote the book, it's called, what does, well, one of his books. What to say when you talk to yourself. Say when you talk to yourself. I yep. think it's the goal. Every time I talk to him, I don't talk to him, but once every few years, um, we're just kind of acquaintances. We're not really friends, but I, I have a big admirer of his work. And I tell him that every time that that book really changed my life. And I think everyone should read that book. It's a little four or five, six dollar book. Probably you can get on Amazon. What to say when you talk to yourself. And it, he really just goes into the psychology and the effects of what we say to ourselves and how we're the most powerful figure in terms of setting up you know, as you said, our own self-image. And I think one of the things he mentions in that book that kind of blew me away back in 86 and to this day, all these years later, still blows me away is that we can manufacture from the outside in our own self-image. And we don't have to leave the world tell us who we are. We can tell ourselves who we are, even if we're making it up. And when you, and because obviously the mind is emotional, we're all emotional creatures and emotional creatures can be manipulated, including self-manipulation. We can manipulate our own minds. That's how that's how brilliant human beings really are. We can, we're, we're a machine that can manipulate itself. And if we know how to do it, and he really talks about that in the book, and you can really make up your own self-image and change it, remanufacture your own self-image, which is just kind of a mind-blowing concept. So I would say to people, I recommend that book. I've sold that book all over the world for Shad. He's a great guy and a brilliant. He says it. I mean, a lot of people have written about it. I've written about it. Other people have written about it. But I don't think anyone's written about it better than him. He's just really the best out there in that area. Well, I think so. And, and really what he says is give your thoughts equal time instead of all the thoughts about the mistakes we've made. Remember the victories. Remember your strengths. Remember the things that have gone well so that you can have the balance. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So many good things in such a tiny book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, now, in terms of the professional speaking arena, um, NSA conferences have audiences full of literally thousands of eager people that hope they can eventually achieve the certified speaking professional designation that you've achieved. What uh, what were some of the key milestones, do you think, in enabling you to become one of the top 1% earners in professional speaking worldwide? Well, I just got lucky, frankly. I met a, I met a gentleman. I got in the business in 96 full time, and, and I failed my first year. I lost $50,000 my first year. And then I was introduced to a gentleman named Bill Gove who was the first president of the National Speakers Association and the mentor of Cabot Robert and Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and Bob Proctor and just about everyone you could imagine back in the day that was a big name. And, uh, and I, I he was 85 years old, and, and I went to his Bill Gove speech workshop, and I learned his system, and we became business partners a few years later for the last five years of his life. And he, he held my hand, he walked me down the path, and he showed me exactly what to do to become a seven-figure speaker. And he told me, he said, look, if you, know, if you do everything I tell you to do, your books will go all around the world. You'll sell millions of copies. You'll be on television. You'll speak all over, make millions of dollars. He said, if you listen to me, 
He goes, I'll mentor you. He said, but if you, if you, if you deviate at all, you have almost no chance of making it. It's a business where very few people make any real money unless they're celebrities. And so I followed what he said. I did it and everything he told me worked. <laughs> I mean, he really deserves all the credit for whatever success I've had. That's for sure. Well, it's your coachability that enabled you to listen and your willingness to listen. Well, as an athlete, I was, I've been coached since I was six years old by some of the greatest tennis coaches, at least of those days when tennis was really a big sport. You know, back in the 70s, if you remember, it was really one of the biggest sports in the country. Now, not so much, but it attracted world-class coaches. And I grew up in Chicago, which was one of the strongholds in the entire world of tennis. Um, it's not anymore again, but it was back then. So I was very fortunate to have, I, I was coached since I was a little kid. So I was, I was good at being coached because that's all I really knew. I didn't have a regular childhood. And so when I met Bill Gove, I was totally coachable. Whereas a lot of the speakers that he worked with were not so coachable. And I never really understood that. Actually, I don't understand it to, today. I mean, when you get a mentor, why not listen to him? Especially if it's a world-class track record like Bill Gove. So I was just very lucky. Right place, right time. Well, having a mentor is such a key point of life and uh, the willingness to listen to that person, just as you've shown. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that some people are just coachable. You were conditioned to be coachable because of your own background. How do you help a person who is not being coachable, first of all, become aware of their lack of coachability, and then second, make those changes? A kind of a constructive confrontation, I guess I'm asking about. Well, I, you know... I don't, I don't know that I'm the best person at this. I have one way to do it, and it works with some people, and it doesn't work with others. And truly, for sure, it's, a, it's more of a professional sports approach than it is an Olympic athlete approach than it is a business approach or an entrepreneurial approach. But what I do is I try to wake them up. That's kind of my thing. It doesn't work with everyone. I recognize that. Uh, but you know, when you're working with a world-class athlete, you know, what you do is you say, look, you're either going to do this work or you're never going to be where you want to be. You're either going to do whatever you're trying to get them to do, and you hit them. You, you hit them right over the head, you know, figuratively, and you, you, you use tough luck, and you use objective reality, and you get them out of living in a delusional fantasy. But these are world-class athletes as well, and they take it. They usually take it very well, whether it's football or tennis or golf. They're very, very tough psychologically. Now, sometimes the average person has that, and sometimes they don't. So the people that have done well with that with me and in terms of people I've coached, have done very well. And then other people, it just scares them half to death. They're just not ready for that. So I always tell them, look, if, if you want, if you want a mental toughness approach and you can take it and you're tough enough, you know, I'm going to probably be a good coach for you and our team will be a good coach for you. But if you're looking for some handholding kumbaya coaching where they got to walk you down a path of, of, um, you know, the snowflake path, that is not what we do in mental toughness training. And that, and that can be effective. It can, I've seen people do it very effectively to their defense. It's the tough love approach is not for everyone. But it's what we do at our company. Sure. That makes total sense. Now, on, on the scope of your, your own company, at what point did you realize you needed to start to add some support and add some people? And what did you do to find and recruit the right people? Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. That's always the toughest one, getting the right people, right? It happened pretty quickly, frankly, um, because we, we grew kind of fast. Just, I was very fortunate, again, because I got, I got pretty famous people pretty fast as as students. And then when the first company we worked with and we got a seven figure contract with was Johnson and Johnson. So, you know, that was the first major client we had, which is you know one of the biggest companies in the world. So we were very fortunate to be able to leverage that their credibility into, you know, our business success. So we had to hire people almost immediately. And at one point we had people operating in 10 countries around the world and, and, and uh, some employees on, on salaries and other people on uh, on contract. But uh, you know what? I've, I've, 
finding the right people. If I had that answer, Dan, boy, I'd give it to you. But I think the best thing you can really do is uh, is hire, like it's an old saying, obviously, I didn't come up with it, but is to, to look for the right attitude, right? Look for integrity. You can all, like they say, hire for attitude and train for skill. That's probably the best thing I've learned. There's certainly a lot of other people that are much better than, than me at hiring. But I've, I've, I've brought out a lot of good people over the years, I think, just by trying to look for people with the right attitude and, and people of integrity that told the truth, that wanted to help the clients. And then we train them for the skills piece. Mm-hmm. Do you sometimes find, find it difficult, Steve, to, to let go and let somebody just go ahead and run, even if you know they might fail on the course they're on? Oh, luck, the, in terms of the clients? Well, yeah, when we're developing a bigger organization, we can't handhold with everybody. And at some point, we have to just let go and fingers crossed and hope we trained them well. What are the ways that a manager can actually get themselves to do that so they're not always second-guessing their people and sapping their confidence instead of building? Oh, yeah, no, you're so right. Yeah, you're so right. No, I, I've been terrible at that over the years, Dan. I, I, I'll just be honest with you. I have not been good. I'm the guy that steps in and says, with my own people sometimes, says, okay, just get out of the way and let me do it. And, of course, that's not the way to manage at all. Um, I'm a lousy manager. I've never been a good manager. Um, I am a good coach in my area, my little niche area. Um, I, I get results if it's the right client, the right time. But in terms of managing people, I've not been so great. So to your point, um, you know, I would defer that to someone with, with, that's a better manager than I will ever be. Uh, I'm more of a coach than a manager. For <laughs> That's for darn sure. Well, I'd like to point out that you show massive humility, objectivity, and a giving spirit when you make those statements about yourself. So. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. It really, it's all really true. I wish I could say more, but I uh, no, I've never been a good manager. I've tried, but uh, more of a coach than a manager. Yeah. Well, and uh, give yourself a bit more credit because you've made a huge difference, and you're continuing to, which is awesome. Now, how can how can you help a manager of salespeople specifically um, develop a the right kind of mental toughness, the tough love you talked about, so that they can coach that person without breaking their spirit, you know, bend the will without breaking the spirit. Any ideas for managers in that area? Yes. This is something we deal with every day in corporate America with management team, sales managers, basically. So we work with every day, vice presidents of regional vice presidents, usually of big corporations that are our, our clients. And then we, te- we work with the district managers who obviously coach the salespeople. And the number one thing we say is stop trying to be the salesperson's friend. You are not their friend. You are their manager. And number two, lead by example. You know, if you, if you want to train them how to sell, get in front of the customer and teach them how to do it yourself. Well, you be able to lead by example. And that means a lot of things. I mean, in every way possible. So once they stop, because I, what I've found is over the years, the 25 years, whatever it's been working with these, these district managers is most of them want to be friends with the salespeople. And I know you know this already because they, you know, the managers are promoted from being a salesperson. And these were all their buddies two weeks ago. Now they're leading the team. And they still want to go out and drink beers with these guys and have fun and have the camaraderie. And, you know, I'm not saying they can't do that. But if that comes first before you being the leader, you're compromised as a leader. And unfortunately, many of them are like that. The great managers we've worked with over the years realize they're leading a team. These are not their friends. These are, their, these are the people they lead. And they can be friends, but that cannot be the priority. Otherwise, they're compromised as a manager, just like coaches of teams. The difference between a college coach in a low-level college sports program anywhere, a high school, compared to a Nick Saban. Nick Saban does not want to be his par- his, uh, his player's best friend. I promise you that. He's making 11 a million a year for more than his football strategy. He's there to lead a team. And if they like him, great. And if they don't, he could care less. And that's any really great leader because they put the position before the relationship. 
And if you want to get results, that's really what, what it really takes. Well, and watching Coach Saban on the sidelines from sometimes, I wouldn't be surprised if he went in and took over for his right tackle just to show him how it's done. I agree. He's an animal. He's very. He's hard <laughs> to argue with the success, though. You know, he's very successful. Oh, yeah. No question about that, which is fantastic. Well, that's really powerful stuff. Um, there's a change in pronoun that occurs when a salesperson becomes a manager. They shift from being us to being they. And when they don't make that own mental shift that I'm no longer an us, I'm now they, it's a difficult transition. Oh, you're so right. That's so true. Great way to say it. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Well, Steve, any uh, kind of parting thoughts with our listeners on daily little baby steps they can take to become more mentally tough? Because I do agree with you. The world needs that. We need to be mentally tough about principles and about values because they're under attack from every quarter. What are some baby steps and initial thoughts people can go through to help become more mentally tough? I think one of the first things that we talk to with, with salespeople and, you know, sales managers is, is to increase your, your level of, of, you know, become more decisive. Try to become more decisive. Increase your, your level of, of, of your ability to, to decide on things quickly and change them slowly. Uh, you know, operate with, with confidence and certainty as opposed to, you know, hesitation. And it's a skill you can build. I mean, I, I don't know, you've probably heard this old, this old story. I don't even know if this is true or not. I've just heard it for so many years from so many people. I assume it's true that years ago, back in the 80s and 70s and 80s, that if you wanted to get a job with Goldman Sachs and you passed the first interview, they would take you to lunch. And the, the manager that took you to lunch, they'd watch you order. And if you didn't select what you wanted for lunch in 30 seconds or less, you couldn't work at Goldman Sachs. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but for sure. But I've heard it so many times, I just, I just figure it may be true. But it is a pretty good it is a pretty good good way to look at how confident people can become, and I think that it's something you can build. Decision making can be built, and then you learn to live with the bad decisions, and and of course with the good ones are that's easy to live with. But uh, but you live with the bad ones, and you become more decisive, and you and it inspires confidence confidence within a team, and it creates more success. So I would I would just mm -hmm. encourage people to work on that. Instead of second-guessing themselves 300 times after each decision. Exactly. If you make a mistake, we all do. You make a lot of decisions, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Make the mistake, you know, you, you, you chalk it up as, as a, you know, something else you learned as an education, you move on. You know, it's a tough world. And if you move fast, especially with the way everything moves now, we really, as we, you know, you said before, we can't re re really don't have time to wallow in any kind of self-pity or anything else. We've got to move now because our competition's moving faster every day. Mm -hmm. So in addition to becoming more decisive, as you put it, decide quickly and make changes slowly as you need to, are there any other things that people can do to influence their own attitudes as they're working on becoming more mentally tough? Yeah, I would say, you know, give yourself a rating on your level of commitment to what you're doing. Let's say a psychological scale. The psychological scale is one to seven, just to make it tighter than one to 10. So say seven, you're most committed to what you're doing. One, you're least committed. Where do you really fall objectively on that scale based on your behaviors in the last, say, 90 days? And then look at you and look at your results. And, you know, I think when you when you start looking at numbers like six and seven, where you're fully committed to what you do, things start to happen that could never happen at the lower level. So I, I would say examine your level of commitment. Mm hmm. Well, there's no doubt about that. The team that scaled Mount Everest for the first time said that the moment one commits oneself, then heaven moves to. But without being fully committed, 
we're going to have failure. We're going to drop back. We're going to hesitate and things aren't going to happen. Yeah, there's something about putting it all on the line. When, you, when you're just going for it all the way, things just start to move out of your way. It's almost like the universe or whatever it is says, oh, just let them through. I mean, they're not going to quit. Obviously, they're just so intent on this goal or this dream or this vision. Just let them have it. I mean, they're never going to quit. There's just some, I don't know what it is, but there does seem to be magic in that. I love that. The universe is just going to say, let them through. It's just, it's just not worth the trouble <laughs> trying to hold them back. You know, I don't know what it is, but it seems like that's what happens sometimes. No, I think that's fantastic. Well, Steve, this has just been an incredibly rapid, but very motivating time spent together. You have helped me personally, and I know that you've helped our, our listeners. I appreciate it, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity. And I, I, uh, I'm a big fan of your company and what you guys are doing out there to make the world better and businesses better. And so please keep doing what you're doing. Well, we plan to do that, Steve. So thank you once again for being part of the Action Catalyst, and we hope we catch you again soon. Thank you, Dan. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.